All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the rows of chairs, and you'll find today's passage in those Bibles on page 833. Again, that's Matthew chapter 26. Today we're going to be reading verses uh, 57 to the end of 26, and then uh, 27 all the way down to verse 26 of that chapter. So it's a big chunk that we're tackling today. Start reading in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a barrier place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews. 
Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had been, there had been a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then having released for them Barabbas and having scoured, scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning that you would send your Spirit to help us to understand your Word. God, that we would see in our passage this morning not just some random words written down a long time ago to tell us a story about what happened to Jesus, but that instead your Spirit would give us together a glimpse of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. That we would know more about Him from looking at Your Word this morning. And that we would see in Him a call on our lives to be redeemed and different. That we pray that You would work in us and through us. And that You would teach us and instruct us with Your Word this morning. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so as you can tell, this is a pretty... Uh, long passage we're going through this morning, so we're going to kind of break it up into some manageable chunks. This this first chunk we get in verses 47 uh, all the way down through 68, and this is the the trial of Jesus before the Jews. And as we're going to see, it's an unjust trial. Uh, the Jews are not playing fairly, and as we know from what the rest of the Bible says about Jesus, and even what we see in this passage this morning, Jesus was innocent. He had no business being on trial, but they had trumped up these charges against him, signed up false witnesses against him, and so this trial takes place. And so what's happening here? Matthew tells us in verse 57 that Jesus, after he's been bound in the garden, he's been captured by Judas and these soldiers and the guys that came with him from the temple, he's taken to the house of Caiaphas, who's the high priest. And he tells us that the scribes and the elders had gathered there. So it's not just Caiaphas, it's not just him and his buddies. He's got the scribes and the elders there, and those are the kind of official 
uh, members of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious court. So this is an official gathering against Jesus to try him for uh, what they believe that he's guilty of. There's a few things we should notice in the course of this trial. The first thing is what Peter does. Peter's following Jesus and the crowd that arrested him. Remember, when they came into the garden to arrest Jesus, all the disciples flee. Peter fleed as well, but he's kind of come back around and he's followed them to Caiaphas' house. I think it's really interesting what this says about Peter. It says that he followed him at a distance... He says, going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter is still following Jesus, but I think that what we see here is that something has changed in his relationship with Jesus. He's not following him at this point because he's his disciple. He's following him because he wants to see the end. He wants to see how Jesus' story is going to end. And so he's, he's almost at this point just a bystander. You know, when you're driving down the road and there's a car accident and traffic stops because everybody in front of you is slowing down as they drive by because they want to see the carnage. I think that Peter here, he's not faithfully following Jesus. He's here to see what happens. He wants to know what the end will be. And as we're going to see later, he comes back into the story. But now it's this trial. And Matthew tells us in verses 49 through 60 that the Jews, when they're going to accuse Jesus, they're not doing it uh, from a legal, uh, morally upstanding perspective. They were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They're trying to sign up people who will come in and say whatever they want them to say so that they can condemn Jesus. And what's funny is that even though that's what they're doing, they can't do it right. They're seeking false testimony, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So they get all these people who are willing to lie to condemn Jesus. They show up, they're lying to condemn Jesus, and they can't even do it then. And then finally, someone, two, two witnesses come forward, and they say this. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. True or false, Jesus actually said this. Nod for true, shake for false. (laughs) Yes, Jesus did actually say this. This isn't a false witness. This isn't someone lying against Jesus. Jesus is quoted in John 2.19 as saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He said these words. They think that he's speaking about the actual temple, but John explains that he's talking about his body, saying this temple. But it's still what he said. It's still what they accuse him with. And they ask Jesus to respond to that charge because in that time, speaking against the temple was speaking against God. And so he could have been condemned for it. But Matthew tells us that Jesus remains silent. So he's on trial for his life. They're, They're bringing these charges against him and he says nothing. And the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is an incredibly ironic thing to say to Jesus. Because this word adjure, I don't even know if I'm saying it right because I don't use it in conversation ever. But what it means is to uh, request earnestly. It's to put someone under an oath. 
So in our courtroom, when the witness takes the stand and the judge makes them raise their right hand, that's what, that's what the high priest is trying to do to Jesus here. He's trying to force him and compel him to answer. And he says, by the living God. The high priest is trying to appeal to God to get Jesus to answer his question. Now what we should think is interesting about that is Jesus is God. He's saying, I adjure you by yourself. Answer my question. Clearly, the high priest doesn't understand who he's speaking to. He doesn't understand the significance of who Jesus is, and so he's trying to compel him to speak by appealing to himself. And Jesus answers, even though he doesn't have to. He says, you have said so, which means, yeah, I said that. That's who I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And then he moves on. But I tell you, from now on, from this point forward, after this trial, the Son of Man, who is Jesus, you will see him seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is saying here is that after he dies on the cross, the next time they're going to see him is when he returns as the Son of Man in power, coming on the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. So again, Jesus is speaking truth. He's telling them what's going to happen. He's telling them who he is. But that's not how they respond. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? These verses are filled with with grace-filled restraint on the part of Jesus. Everything that's happening here, the way he responds, the way he doesn't respond, is all based on grace. There's a few things that we should should see. The first is they accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy is is speaking reviling or or slanderous speech against God. It's saying things against God that are either hateful or not true. This is what they're accusing Jesus of. The question is who actually does that in this passage? Does Jesus say anything that's not true about God or say anything that's slanderous against God in this passage? Absolutely not, right? The only thing he says is true. He talks about who he is, and it's true. But what about them? Do they say anything slanderous against God? Do they say anything reviling against God? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely, right? Even just saying that sentence, he has uttered blasphemy. They're calling Jesus a liar. Jesus is God. They're calling God a liar. They are the ones that are guilty of blasphemy. Then they say, he deserves death. This, they're actually right about. Leviticus 24 talks about the punishment for blasphemy. And since I know that not all of you have this memorized, I'll read it. It says, now an Israelite woman's son 
whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. So there's this Israelite woman's son, a guy. He gets in fight with an Israelite man. And then this happens. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. So in the course of this fight, the son blasphemes God and curses. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was something. The daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. So this guy commits blasphemy. They take him to Moses and they lock him up. And they're waiting until they have a decision on what they should do. And then this is what happens. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, the one who blasphemed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord will surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So that means, if somebody, if this was you know, ancient Israel, which thankfully it's not for a number of reasons, but if it was, and somebody in here were to curse God, our responsibility as a church would be, Everybody that's heard them needs to go up to them and put their hand onto their head. And then everybody else circles around and throws rocks at them until they die. Preferably without hitting the people that are placing their hands on his head. The punishment for blasphemy in Israel was death. No way out, no options, no grace, no mercy. You blaspheme God, you die. So that's what they're trying to do. They're saying he's spoken against God, which we know that he hasn't. We know that it's them that deserve death, not him. But Jesus doesn't respond. And here, I think it's helpful for us to imagine two different situations in order to try to understand what's going on here and just how much grace we see in Jesus. The first is that if we were in this position, it's, first of all, difficult for us to understand because none of us are innocent. You know, none of us in a conflict with someone else are ever in a position where we've done nothing wrong. But if that were the case, and if there were people that were just hurling insults at us, and there's, there's no way we could respond like this. There's no way we could just sit there and not say anything, not respond in any way, especially when we were being falsely accused. And the second thing, the second scenario, is just like that, except instead of us being the person who's, who's being falsely accused, instead of us being the one who everyone is speaking against, imagine it being someone that you care about more than anyone else. Your, your best friend, your spouse, your, your children, uh, maybe your parents. Someone that you think, I would do whatever it took to not see them be harmed by other people. The reality is, is that, that both of those things are happening here. right? Because we have, we have Jesus, who's in this situation, who's being falsely accused, who's having these insults hurled at him, who's being condemned to death, and he says nothing. On the other side, we have have the Father, 
right, who's, who's watching over all of this, he's seen his son condemned. He's seen his son speak truth about who he is and being condemned for it and punished for it. And he doesn't intervene either. And probably the biggest difference between their situation and our situation is that they absolutely could stop this. Right? We know that Jesus is all-powerful. We know that the Father is all-powerful. We know that the Spirit is all-powerful. If at any point God wanted to stop this trial from happening and, and break His Son out and free Him from this punishment, He absolutely could do that. But they don't. So I think the only explanation of their restraint is the fact that they are committed to the plan that they put in place to show grace to the world, to redeem creation. The God of the universe is being put on trial here by His people. The the Creator is being attacked, hit, spit upon by His creation, and He does nothing. He does nothing because He's rich in grace and mercy, and that's the only reason. And I want to be clear about us not confusing what's happening here because, you know, I know there's uh, all those intellectually shallow and theologically inaccurate Christian songs out there which talk about how, you know, when Jesus was enduring these things and headed to the cross, we were some sort of twinkle in his eye and that, you know, he, he thought of us above all. That's not true. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. You see, we want to imagine in this scenario, this trial that's taking place, that there are three sides. Right? There's Jesus' side. He's innocent. He's being condemned by other people. Then there's the side of the Jewish religious leaders who are the ones that are doing the condemning. Right? They're, they're condemning Jesus to death. They're hurling these insults at Him. They're mocking Him. They're spitting upon Him. But then there's a third side. Uh, uh, kind of innocent bystanders or people like us, right? We weren't even there. And so clearly we were impartial. We're blameless. But the problem is, is that third category doesn't exist. When, when Scripture describes our relationship to God, our relationship to Jesus before the cross, it's not that we're some twinkle in His eye. It's not that He's thinking about us fondly. He's thinking of us above all. When Scripture talks about us, it uses words which are very, very negative. We're sinners. We're dead in our trespasses. We're enemies of God. The relationship that we had with Jesus was one of hostility, just like these Jewish religious leaders. And so when we think about Him enduring the cross, when we think about Him enduring this mistreatment from others, we should not think it's because of us. We don't deserve what He's done for us. That's what makes it grace. And grace is the only explanation for Him enduring these things on our behalf. And we shouldn't be confused and think anything else because if we do that, we're just cheapening what He's done for us. And so that's why we're not going to sing songs like that at BC. Because they're not true and they make a mockery of what Jesus has done for us. In the next chunk, what we see is we get a setting change. 
So Matthew's told us what's happened inside. He's told us about how they've condemned him to death. And then we go outside. We go back outside of the courtyard to see what's been going on with Peter and uh, these people who are you know, accusing him of being who he actually is. What happens is this servant girl comes and says, you were with him. Peter says, no. Then he runs away. Another servant comes and says, this man, talking about Peter, was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denies it again, this time kind of ratcheting things up with an oath. Finally, they come over to him again after he's run away. Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So he's done. He's denied it. He's denied it with an oath, and now he denies it by invoking a curse on himself. He swears, I do not know the man. Then Peter hears the rooster crow, and it says that he remembered what Jesus had said. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. Now this is a well-known passage. We've probably most of us have heard it taught multiple times. And I don't know if this has been the case for you, but whenever I've heard this taught, I've never really been satisfied by the explanation of what Peter does. Usually what people say is that Peter denies and the rooster crows, and then he he realizes what's happened, and then he, he just weeps, right? He weeps bitterly. And usually the explanation for Peter's weeping is that you know, he's, he's just emotional because he's disappointed Jesus. You know, he recognizes what he's done and he's just really emotional about it. But to me, that doesn't really explain this picture we get of Peter in the Gospels. He's not some guy who gets upset about something and cries his eyes out. Right? He's, he's the guy who opens his mouth and says ridiculous things. But even when he does that, right, Jesus calls him Satan. I would say in that situation, it's a safe bet that he disappointed Jesus. But we don't see Peter crying his eyes out. We don't see him all weepy. When uh, he's in the garden, these soldiers come up and try to arrest him. Peter doesn't hide behind a tree and cry. Right? He pulls out a sword and chops a dude's ear off. He's not this kind of weepy cry guy. And so, to me, I mean, it just seems like there's something more going on here than Peter just being upset about what's happened. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't know this for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us this for sure. But what I think is happening here is when Peter denies Jesus a third time, when he hears the rooster crow, what happens in him is that he realizes that what Jesus said would happen, happens. Right? As they're sitting at the Lord's Supper together, Jesus tells him he's going to deny him. He says he won't. And he says the rooster's going to crow after you've denied me three times. So I think what's happening here is Peter is kind of having this moment where everything is clicking for him. He's not just upset because he's disappointed Jesus. I think he is upset. I think he's emotionally stirred, but not because of denying him. Because when that happens, when that rooster crows, I think what happens in Peter is he recognizes that everything that Jesus has said is true. I think he realizes if he knew that this was going to happen before it happened, then everything else he said was going to happen is going to happen. I think he recognizes this means that Jesus is actually going to die. I think this is where he finds out how the story's going to end. 
And not just the bad things. I think he also realizes that everything else Jesus said was true as well. His purpose in dying on the cross isn't just going to be to go out with a bang. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I I think that what's happening here is, is Peter is overcome. He's overcome with the knowledge that Jesus actually is who he says he is. I think that those moments in our lives with God where we realize in a, in a clearer and more precise way that He actually is who He says He is. When we realize that what Jesus said was true. When we realize that the Bible isn't just a book of, of random words that we read because you know, our parents told us to. When we realize that these things actually are true and are our reality, I think that kind of knowledge, that kind of understanding is going to emotionally overtake us. Peter's weeping bitterly. He's lost control of his emotions because of who he understands Jesus to be. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I want that. I want, I want to know Jesus in this way. I don't want to be, you know, weepy and cry when I disappoint Jesus. I want to know in a, in a real and emotional way that He is who He says He is and that to shape me. And so, what I'm going to do, and I would encourage you to do this as well, is you know, as you spend time in the Word, you know, don't just read it. Read it as you're realizing that it's true. And ask God to shape you with it, with His Spirit, Instead of just, you know, your eyes passing over the words on the page and then forgetting about it by the time you have your breakfast or lunch. The next chunk we get to is in Matthew 27. The first two verses are uh, just Matthew explaining that the chief priests have moved Jesus. They're moving him from uh, their kind of the high priest's house to Pilate. They're doing this because the Jews don't have the ability to kill someone. They don't have the death penalty. Only the Romans do. And so they know if they want to actually kill Jesus, they're going to have to take him to Pilate and convince Pilate to do it. So that's what happens. And then we get a... Matthew fills us in on what's happened to Judas. Are you guys all incredibly hot? Do you want me to turn on these fans? They're, they're loud, but I can be louder. Okay. Because I've lost about six pounds since I started preaching. <laughs> See, they're not too loud, are they? Okay. Alright, this, this next section here is where we, what, we find out what happened to Judas. And what Matthew tells us here is that once Judas has recognized what's happened to Jesus, so he sees that Judas, Jesus is condemned by the Jews, and so he sins, he goes into the temple, and this is what Matthew says. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So what Judas does here is he goes back to the temple. Uh, it says that he changed his mind. He acknowledges what he's done to the high priest. He says, 
I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then he gives back the money. He actually throws it back. And what's interesting about what's happening here is that this word, he changed his mind, could also be translated, he felt repentance. He changed his mind. could also be he felt repentance. So he comes back says he's, he's had an internal change based on what's happened. He confesses his sin, right? He says out loud, I've done this thing and it was wrong. And then he gives back the money. He like attempts to make restitution. And this has led some people to see in this passage that Judas has repented. He's come back and he's, he's seeking to make things right. And so there's, there's scholars out there who will argue that you know, Judas' end was different than what we normally think it was. I don't think that that's what's happening here. I don't think that we see Judas repenting, and that's for two reasons. The first reason is that every single time, even here, when Judas is mentioned in the Bible, it's negative. There, there's not a single positive statement made about his life. And so I think that if, you know, the Spirit of God had really convicted Judas to such an extent that he repents and he changes internally, I think that the rest of the New Testament would tell us that. He is inspired by the same Spirit that encourages repentance in us. The second reason why I don't think that he's actually repentant is because of what happens next. Matthew tells us that he departed and he went out and he hung himself. True repentance results in a walk of obedience. It's not just feeling bad about our sin. It's not just changing our minds about our sin. It's changing what we do as well. It's, it's the Spirit of God working within us so that we walk in obedience to God's Word. And so repentance can't just be what Judas does here. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just changing our minds. It's not just giving back what we took. He doesn't respond with obedience. He responds by taking his life. There's a systematic theologian named, named Louis Burkhoff who wrote in the early 1900s, and he, he said that repentance is three things. It's intellectual, right? We change our minds about sin. The things that I used to do, the things that I used to like, the things that I used to think were good, I don't anymore. Number two is emotional. The way we feel about what we do changes when the Spirit redeems us. Number four is volitional, which is a fancy word to talk about a change of our will. It means we do things differently. And I think this is important because like Judas, we normally just do the first two things. When we think about a perpetual or ongoing struggle of sin that we have, when we're confronted with God's Word, when we realize who Jesus is and what He's done for us, typically we feel bad about our sin. We feel bad that we've not done what Christ has called us to do. Maybe even our minds are changed about our sin. But the very fact that it's a perpetual struggle with sin shows that our actions haven't changed. And so in order for repentance to be truly repentance, we need to have all of those things. 
We need to have changed minds and changed emotions and a changed will to where we don't keep doing the same things. After this, Jesus gets before Pilate. This is what Matthew says. Now when Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? The reason why Pilate asked him this is because when the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate, they had to change the charges. right? Because if they just bring Jesus to this Roman governor and say, He's guilty of blasphemy, you need to kill him, he's going to say, What do I care about blasphemy? Because he's Roman, he's not Jewish. And so in order to convince Pilate that he should put Jesus to death, they have to change the charges. They have to give Pilate something that he's going to want to put Jesus to death for. And so they say, this guy is a king in opposition to Caesar. And so this is why Pilate asked Jesus that question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Because that's what the Jews have said. They've said he's this king, which you know, we know that truthfully he is. And that's what Jesus says. You have said so. It's his way of saying, yes, I am. But then the chief priests and the elders accuse him, and he doesn't answer. So Pilate asks him a follow-up question. Do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This is probably the first time that Pilate's ever had someone standing before him uh, under his judgment where they haven't defended themselves. And again, as we talked about before, we know that the only reason why Jesus doesn't is because of his grace. Matthew goes on to tell us that at the feast during Passover, the Roman governor had the ability to release one prisoner. He did this so that the people would like him. And so he thinks that this is his opportunity to let Jesus go because Matthew tells us that you know, Pilate doesn't really, he's not convinced that Jesus deserves death. He even says that he's done nothing deserving of death. So Pilate asks, he says, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You know, it's easy for us to look at this and to say, well, you know, Barabbas should have died instead. You know, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but we find out elsewhere that, that Barabbas was a robber and an insurrectionist, which is a rebel against the government. And he was a murderer. So clearly, Barabbas is someone that deserved death. For everything that he had done, he was deserving of death under Roman law. And so it's easy for us to look at this and say, yeah, clearly, they should have said, give us Jesus. Kill Barabbas. Or we could look at it in another way and say, it's, it's these Jewish religious leaders who are the ones that deserve to die. Right? They're the ones who are stirring up the people against Jesus. These, these same people that, you know, back in Matthew 21, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they're worshiping him. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're acknowledging that he's the Messiah that's come into the city to redeem them. So they go from worshiping him to condemning him because these 
uh, their religious leaders, the guys who they were supposed to go to for shepherding, are stirring them up against Jesus. And so it's easy for us to look at this and say, these people deserve to die, not Jesus. But what we can't forget is that that's our story too. In this story, we're Barabbas. We're the people who are guilty of punishment. We're the people who are guilty of judgment. We're the people that deserve to die in Jesus' place. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, as we remember again that Jesus died, we can't forget the fact that he died for us. He died bearing our punishment. He died suffering for the things that we should suffer for. All of our sin, past, present, and future, was placed on him. And so we can't point the finger at Barabbas. We can't point the finger at the Jewish religious leaders. We can't point the finger at Pilate. It's our fault. Our blame was placed on him. And so this morning, as you prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper, ask the Spirit to to make that real to you. Don't, Don't dismiss that truth and not allow it to actually shape who you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that every word the Bible says about you is true. That you really did live a perfect life. And that you really died on the cross, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin. We thank you that you got what we deserve. That you died so that we could go free. That you allowed your creation to condemn you so that you could redeem it. I pray that you would send your spirit to overwhelm us with the truth of our salvation. that what you've done for us would affect everything that we are in real and tangible ways. God, I pray that you would help us by your power to grasp the magnitude of the grace in your actions in this passage and in the whole Bible on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.